This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode 126. This podcast is a continuation of that, my conversation with Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones. It went so long that I split it into two. So if you enjoyed our conversation last week, you will get a little bit more this week. And a quick reminder, if you want to try coaching, I offer free coaching on my website, juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com. I would love to work with you and show you exactly how life coaching works and how it can make things in your life and career so much better. Anyone that wants a better life should have a life coach. So if you're a technician, if you're a veterinarian, if you're a veterinary student, I have reduced rates for students and veterinary technicians, but get yourself a life coach. It will change everything. So let's get back to the podcast with Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones. I will give you my full attention. But therefore, I need to do the same for the people in front of you in the line. And, you know, I think that that's reasonable. Now, I've also worked at charity clinics where, you know, it is a production line. They're not paying the bill and you do get them in and get them out. And it is just if your appointment took two minutes because it was a vaccine and yours took half an hour because it was euthanasia, that's how life is. Um and so, you know, there are different scenarios, but in your general standard private practice, you're paying the same fee for my time. I'm not going to dip them of their time to spend more time with you. That's not fair. That's not how the world works. Um, and I actually have a, a moderately strong um, aversion to greasing the squeaky wheel, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. So, well, I just, you know, I, I've... I've gotten quite frustrated, particularly, you know, you'll be doing something, whether that's, you know, chasing results or, you know, having your lunch break or seeing another customer and the nurse or the receptionist will come and kind of go, oh, this woman's really upset that she's been waiting a long time. And I'm like, I'm really sorry that she's upset that she's been waiting a long time, but just because she's verbally angry about it, and treating you like crap, why would I reward that behavior? Yeah, like, push her I'm, to the front of the line because that's our natural thing, right? Exactly. And we get is. her out of here so we don't have to deal with her anger. Yeah. We make someone else wait that's being perfectly lovely. Yeah. That doesn't make sense, right? That does not make sense. And so I have a really strong passion for, frankly, the more aggressive you are, particularly towards my poor innocent receptionists, probably the lower down my priority list you're going to find yourself. Bottom of the stack, right? <laughs> yeah. My phone messages, you go to the bottom. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And I know that I'm, you know, I'm often not the person who has to buffer that anger. And I understand that the, the nurses and the receptionists out the front feel a lot more of that anger. And sometimes they can be really mad in reception and then they come into the consult room and they're perfectly nice to the vet. Right. Um, but one of the things that I do, you know, just in a basic human behavior kind of tactic is when I do go out and get them and I know they have been waiting and I know they perhaps have been frustrated. 
one of the things that I think a lot of people say is I'm really sorry about the wait. And while that's perfectly legitimate to apologize that they have been waiting, it also gives them a little bit of validation that that it's a problem done something wrong right and so I tend to come out and it's a very very small change in sentence but all I say is thank you so much for being so patient (laughs) even if they haven't been (laughs) even if they haven't it's a hard time rebutting that right that's exactly it it's really hard what what comeback have they got yeah because if you say sorry for running late they go oh yeah it's unacceptable blah 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 blah. but if you say thank you for your patience what's what's the response to that they go no problem yeah I had (laughs) most most people say no problem but I did have one guy say something like well I wasn't patient (laughs) (laughs) I would then I just I would respond to that saying thank you for your honesty yeah I just would (laughs) I just laughed and I was like well you know at least you're telling me the truth so yeah but I, I totally agree with you that that it's really important on how you approach it And the other Mm. thing that I think is a really strong tool that you can, um, if you can get it in your tool bag, it is get that adrenaline rush under control before Mm. you talk to that person. Because if someone tells you someone's angry Mm. and I don't know, I've gotten way better at this over the years, but I used to get this like huge, you know, Mm. defense adrenaline feeling like I'm going to go in there and kick, you know, we're going to fight. And I think if you go in there with that fighting attitude that you tend to ramp it up rather than calm it down. And so what I usually do is try to get that feeling to go away if I'm feeling it and just kind of be like, all right, you know, you don't want to fight. Let's just go in there and, you know, be who you are and then walk in there and just sometimes I don't say a word. I just kill them with kindness. Hey, how, how are you doing? You know, I just pretend like nothing ever happened. And the, the receptionist didn't just tell me that you were being a jerk, you know, get on the phone. Hey, it's Dr. Capel. How you doing? You know, and, and if they say, oh, not very well, because of such and such. Oh, well, let me see if I can help you, you know, and just like, like, don't even respond to the negativity with negativity because, you know, either they're going to stay mad in which case I've been the kind person and I've done my job or Mm -hmm. you're going to diffuse them because you're not, you're not fighting. Mm -hmm. You're just, this is the reality you've had to wait. You know, you waited until your pills ran out and now it's an emergency. Mm -hmm. This is where we are. Maybe I can help you and maybe I can't, you know, and just, and really try to have a conversation with yourself before you go into that that confrontation, if you think of it that way. Mm. And it really does diffuse them, like you said. Yeah, I, I use almost the exact same tactic of the kill them with kindness kind of thing. I think as soon as one of my team does come and say, you know, oh, this person's really irate or this person was really nasty or, you know, the last vet had a lot of trouble with this person, whatever it is, I very much, you know, I do do a few deep breaths and I walk in there with what could be considered fake cheer. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. If you know me well. Right. You act it. You're you're yeah. acting it into reality. Yeah. And it's almost over the top. If you know me well. <laughs> you know? And, but I, if, when you go in there going in that bright bubbly, good morning, Sarah. How are you this morning? It's very difficult for them to 
aggressively respond. And some people will still, some people have still got it in them, but there does come three or four once, you know, you've gone low and they've gone up three or four times in a row. And now it becomes really clear that you're being nothing but friendly and they are now being a total jerk. Even most totally unaware people get to a point where they're like, I'm shouting at a little blonde woman. (laughs) They're not not getting what they want, right? They want Mm -hmm. the fight. There are Mm -hmm. people, and I I tell this to my team sometimes, there are people that are just naturally bullies because Mm -hmm. they get their way. Mm -hmm. So if you continually give them that rewarding that bully behavior. So -hmm. if you can stand there without backing down and be strong, but Mm -hmm. not participate in that in that ramping up of the emotion, then it Mm. kind of disarms them. Like I've, I've won over many, many bullies to be really nice, good clients because I didn't take the crap. You Mm -hmm. know, they would come in, I want this and I want that. And I'd be like, okay, well, here's what I can do. And, you know, I want to help you (laughs) You just like, really don't give them what they want, but also not give them the fight that they're looking for. Yeah. Because, you know, if, they, if they're anything like me, they enjoy fighting. <laughs> I, I say that I enjoy like a little back and forth sometimes. And so if you reward that with the, with fighting with them, then the next time they, they'll elevate and make it yeah. you know, even more rude. I really like your comment, you know, well, here's what I can do. And I think that that's, um, you know, stops the negative cycle of, no, I can't do that. And, you know, starting to come back on the, almost on the offensive, which here's where, what I can offer you. Um, And the other one that I often use to sort of deflect when people are just having a massive rant at you and they're clearly angry and they're just, you know, they're on that sort of spiel. I often just simply say, what would make you happy with this situation? Here's what I am not able to offer you. Mm -hmm. Then they don't. When you actually go, here's unfortunately what I cannot do because my manager or whatever that is, what, what would make you satisfied with this situation? What outcome are you looking for? And I'd say 80% of the time they cannot answer that question. Or they they might turn back time. Yeah. Well, I I don't want to have waited. And because I waited, I don't want to pay for this exam or whatever. And you're like, well, that's not how it works. (laughs) But what else can I do? You know? Yeah. And and so I think there's a lot of power in trying to put back on them that realization for themselves that there is no fixing this. It's it's happened now. Um and you're being unreasonable. <laughs> you are just yelling at me without wanting any particular outcome out of the yelling. Yeah. And I think that sometimes when you can get them to see they don't know the solution to the problem either, it's a little bit easier for them to understand why you can't come up with a solution for the yeah, problem. And that's why a lot of times they come back to the money, right? Because mm. they don't know what they want. And so mm. because it can't be resolved, then they go to, well, then I don't want to pay. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know, and, and in some instances, I, I might agree that 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 there's something that we missed that they might not need to pay for. And sometimes you do give them money or a discount or whatever. Um, but it's rare. And I, I almost never do. 
Yeah. Well, and yeah. And I've gotten to that point where I, I know that doesn't fix it because it's like you said, if you're admitting when you come in and say, I'm sorry, you, I'm sorry for the weight, you're mm-hmm. admitting that you did something wrong. And the same thing goes for when you give them money back, right? You're admitting mm-hmm. that something you did was wrong and that they mm-hmm. are right. And it's okay if that's, if that's truly the case. Yeah. But like if, also- if I did miss something, absolutely. We don't change it. But right. yeah, but if, if it, I spent the time just trying to get them to go away because you don't want the confrontation, if it's your way of, we'll just give them their money back so they'll get out of here, then mm-hmm. that's a cop out. And that's something that I think adds to our stress because then, then we have the, well, now I didn't make any money now, you know, I, I caved and then, and then you go into that mindset of, I, I could have done this differently. Yeah. And that customer will do the same thing again again and again, because it, they got rewarded for their yeah, bad behavior. For yeah. sure. So, you know, you wouldn't go ahead. Oh, you know, you, 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 you wouldn't go to the mechanic, him ordering some expensive part for you, spend two hours fixing your car. And then because, you know, he fixed your engine and your tail light broke, <laughs> you wouldn't go, well, I want my money back for the engine repair. Like that's not how life works you still need to pay for the service provided whether or not something else is still wrong yeah or whether or not it worked you know there are times when you do something you tell the client to do something they don't do it properly they don't keep the e-collar on they don't give the, all the antibiotics whatever it is and then the problem is still there or whatever then that's not on you that's just life you know yeah that's how, how for life sure. works. kind of like your your taillight scenario yeah. And I, th- I just, I do think that so much of it is, comes down to the words we choose to use. And as you say, that kind of um, whether or not you buy into them wanting the fight um, and just choosing to maintain your calm. Now, don't get me wrong. Those conversations take it out of me. You know, when you walk in there and you're totally flatline, calm and chilled and cheerful, despite them screaming, <laughs> I walk away you, from those conversations. You want oh yeah Yeah. and you walk away and you know either you've got a little bit of trembling from the adrenaline or you kind of really have to sit down and if I I I have my whole life I am a frustration crier and so when people yell at me I cry (laughs) and it's not because I'm sad oh you're an angry cry yeah Yeah, I get really really angry I cry which is kind of frustrating when you're in a big yeah and Exactly, because it's the worst time when you least want to cry, and then you're even more angry because you're angry at yourself. So then you cry a little bit more. Yeah, we're pretty much on the same boat. But what I've learned over time is I cannot cry in the situation, but I have to have the cry after the situation. So release that think, emotion. Yeah. You can't make that emotion go away. I mean, you can you do your best to sort of reframe your thinking about the conversation, but those those conversations are stressful. And when people do yell at you, you are allowed to go out the back and have a cry. You are allowed to have a tremble and, you know, your, your lower jaw kind of. Uh, 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 <laughs> and, and that is okay. Yeah. yeah. And if I think that we're expected, we, we expect ourselves to be really brave in the face of yelling, particularly as vets, where I think we feel a bit of a responsibility to protect our nurses and our, you know, receptionists if they're being yelled at, yelled at, particularly when they're, you know, young, vulnerable women and you kind of go mother hen. 
we feel like we should be brave and that we should be okay with being screamed at. And not many people are. <laughs> That's okay. Just because I can stand there. Yeah, I think, and I and I worry sometimes because I've had the comment before in my shelter that, you know, I've stood there and maintained this really calm, chilled out facade while somebody's, you know, very large gentleman holding a pit bull is screaming at me. Yeah. And I'm I'm totally chill. I'm got it all together. I'm really sorry, sir. I'm really sorry we're unable to help you. Would you like me to offer you this? Or, you know, and I've been absolutely calm. And then my staff have kind of said, oh my God, how did you do that? And I've walked into my office and burst into tears <laughs> because that, that emotion is somewhere. Um, and in hindsight, I wish that I'd spent more time probably letting my staff see the burst into tears part to let them know that actually I, I'm not okay with that either. Yeah. It's okay for that to hurt and for that to feel quite personal and quite invasive. And I feel in, in hindsight, I wish I'd made more of an effort to let them see the vulnerable, not the facade that just the customer was seeing. Yeah. Um, because again, coming back to that imposter syndrome, I know that I, I have caused staff to feel like, they can't deal with those situations because it really upsets them. Yeah. As though it didn't upset me. Right. Like you're some kind of robot. I've often said to people that I think that they should put us through some acting classes <laughs> in veterinary school because there's a lot of acting going on. Mm. Don't you think? Like in the exam room, sometimes you're not feeling the greatest. You just, you just did a euthanasia. You're sad. You walk mm. into the next room with a puppy. You know, you have to you know, and you get good at switching your emotions, but Mm. you don't have time to process all the time. So I think sometimes part of our imposter syndrome, we're kind of circling back to that is the fact that we are sometimes acting, you know, sometimes we're playing a role and it doesn't feel authentic. And and it's difficult to not be your authentic self. That that is energy consuming. I, um, I put myself through uni teaching aerobics which, you know, is a is an amusing kind of career history to have. <laughs> but I think it was an exceptional skill to learn in your early 20s that you spend an hour putting on a persona that your membership wants to see. And so you are this, yay, isn't exercise wonderful? Life's so great. <laughs> And of course, I was a uni student. I was 21 years old. I was coming in to do a Saturday morning triple for a pump step RPM off of a night out on the town. And I was mainly trying not to vomit. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, but that skill of being able to put on the facade is a really valuable skill. And I wouldn't recommend that people feel the pressure to be in that facade all the time because I think that when you're not your authentic self that is more emotionally exhausting um and I think that if if we encourage people to just be in the facade for nine hours of their day five hours a week I think that that would be really dangerous um but I do think it is okay to learn that skill to sometimes you just have to put that brave face on soldier through for the next 15 minutes as long as you have set aside time later to recover from that 15 minutes. And that's the most important thing I think is understanding when it's getting to be too much. 
Mm. You know, you have days where you put on that acting face so long that it, it is exhausting. And so knowing yourself well enough to say, look, I just need five minutes. I just yeah. need, I just need to walk outside or mm-hmm. you know, walk around the block or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Even if you have clients waiting, you know, I, yeah. I always joke that I would hide in the bathroom because that's one of the few places in a veterinary hospital that they won't come after you as a doctor. <laughs> Sometimes they'll slide notes under the door. I've had that happen, <laughs> but most of the time, most of the time you can go into the bathroom, shut the door and you will be alone. And so I, I think just realizing that that's all okay too, you know, even if they're calling yeah. you for a client or you need a second or mm-hmm. you need to call your child or you need, you know, there are things that are more important than, yep. you know, always being on at the veterinary clinic. Well, the way I look at, you know, most of us know the feeling in normal life when you've booked a holiday in three months from now and somehow everything is just a little bit easier to cope with because there's a finite deadline and that if you can just get through till that holiday, you'll be okay. Now, of course, we know that that's not true because you have to come back to real yes. life. <laughs> but but the feeling of relief that comes from having a time set aside to recover is quite strong. And so I try to bring that in many versions into my life. So I have Sunday sloth day. I can't remember if I was talking to you about this last time, but um, I don't work on Sundays. If I have to work on Sundays, I take Mondays off. Um, And I almost never book social engagements on Sundays either. I very much, it is for me and my dog. And sometimes I stay in my pajamas all day and I don't feel the tiniest guilty about it. Other times we go for a big long hike up in the hills and we can walk for eight hours and not be contactable and I don't feel the tiniest bit guilty about it. And that is something that really makes my week much more manageable because no matter how tired I am, I'm like, it's okay, I've got Sunday, I'll be all right. I'll catch up. then I bring that back to even a smaller kind of minute level and that booking breaks throughout my days are my miniature version of that, that I don't allow people to book things in my break. If, of course, if something's dying or imminently suffering, yes, of course, I'm going to see it. But if a nurse comes in and says, oh, there's been a walk-in, could you just, you know, prepare this prescription or you know can you just quickly look at the paperwork I will look at my watch and I will say just taking a break now I can do that in 10 minutes Mm. and I get I get a moderate amount of pushback um and people are often surprised I believe though that that's my responsibility to look after myself in that space and if all vets did that then we would all be better off I think one of the problems is that you know when I do it I'm looked at a little bit of scars (laughs) you know like what do you mean you won't help me help this customer right well because you're kind of they are feeling like you're putting it back on them but they can absolutely do the same thing is say to the client I can get this done for you but it's going to be a 30 minute wait so yeah. if you have an errand to run, go do your errand. And then if you come back, I'll have it ready for you or whatever. Yeah. So they can set and those boundaries as yeah. well. That's an absolutely perfectly reasonable thing to say to a customer is, yes, I can do that for you. Would you like to go grab a coffee when the veterinarian's back from their lunch? 
you know, they'll do that. And yeah, and we're so opposed to that, right? We mm-hmm. have every other profession has a lunch or they go out to lunch mm-hmm. or, you know, yeah. the first practice that I worked at, they closed for an hour, like literally locked the doors for an hour. Oh, wonderful. And, <laughs> and the doctors were pretty much encouraged or required to leave the building. So Wonderful. I remember my first job, I, every day for an hour, I would actually go somewhere, you mm-hmm. know, back then, I think it was Wendy's. I'd go to Wendy's and I'd read, <laughs> a, read a book and have lunch or whatever. And I just thought that was powerful. And that's something that we, um, we forget to do. And I know during COVID, our phones have been so crazy. Um, we decided that we were just going to shut the phones off every day for 30 minutes in the middle of the wow. day. So the receptionist could get lunch and get a break and catch up with their notes or whatever. And we just posted it. We posted it on our website, on social media. We put a sign on the door. The phones are down for 30 minutes from, I think, I think it's like one 30 to two or something. I don't know what it is, but Mm -hmm. it's just that we had to do that in order to help take care Mm -hmm. of that team, because otherwise those phones just never Mm -hmm. stop. And it, and that's all okay. And people say, well, what if somebody has an emergency in that 30 minutes? Well, then they'll be waiting when the phones come back on, or they'll go to the next clinic that's open, you know, for those. We've created this cognitive dissonance where people expect instant responses from us, you know, again, you know, possibly a difference between America and Australia, but here, if you, for example, your doctor writes you a script to go get your bloods taken and you go to, we have what we call a clinopath lab and you'd go and, you know, get your bloods taken and you'd wait in your queue. But because there's usually only one phlebotomist there, they have their hours written on the door and the hours are 9 until 12.30, one thirty until 5. Right. Because the person who is a sole charge person there needs to go on their lunch break right. for an hour <laughs> and nobody thinks it's unusual if you didn't know the hours and you just rocked up and you looked at her door and were like oh darn I've come in the lunch break sure you might be like oh that's really inconvenient for me but well whatever I'll come back tomorrow like you don't you wouldn't be irrationally angry about that and yet we have this guilt about being allowed to set aside times when we're unavailable to the right. public yeah yeah and i and want so, to encourage people to to think about that mm-hmm. and do it you know like actually schedule it actually do something because mm-hmm. we we like to complain about how hard our job is but then we mm-hmm. don't do anything martyr syndrome yeah. Can we keep going? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to keep you longer than your, you know, <laughs> no, you're fine. I, I think with the martyr syndrome, uh, and this is one of the issues I have, and I want to be really, really clear that I believe there are genuine issues in our industry. And I believe that a huge proportion of that is the industry's job to do have some solutions for. I believe that a proportion of that is employers' job to have a, a solutions for. But I also think that we as individuals have to take responsibility for things like lunch breaks, which you are entitled to. If your boss makes you work through it when there's not an animal's life in danger, that is illegal. 
Right. That's a, that's a big problem. Even if it's illegal, it's a problem. Exactly. And so it is your choice. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. It feels like the pressure is against us, but it is your choice. And the reason that someone like me can walk in as a locum into a clinic, because I'm trying to keep my clinical skills at some sort of basic level and go, sorry, I can't, I can help you with that in 10 minutes when I'm back from my break. The reason I can do it is because I don't have to work with those people on a day-to-day basis. But until every vet starts saying that, everybody's going to continue to look at the me's of the world a little bit like, oh, what do you mean? You can't help. That's very selfish. And it's not. It is my right. It is my obligation to myself. It is also my employer's legal obligation to allow me to have that. So why are we creating this peer pressure in the opposite direction, which does ourselves a disservice? And so by having this martyr syndrome, by kind of going, oh, I haven't had my lunch break in a month, you are adding to a culture which tells younger vets or more impressionable vets or those that don't have the resolve to stand up and say no, but who may wish to, you're letting them know that your behavior is what you expect of them. And so I think that if we were truly to take responsibilities for ourselves and for fixing the things that we have power over in our profession, a lunch break is an absolute basic. It is the simplest thing that you should be doing as an adult professional to protect yourself, which is, is the animal suffering? No, then I'll be back in half an hour. Right. I'll see you. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that sounds a little bit harsh and I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I do believe that we have a responsibility to ourselves and to the people who are looking to us to really start creating a peer pressure in the other direction. Well, and you say that it sounds harsh, but the only reason it sounds harsh is because we haven't made that a normal thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it should be normal. Mm-hmm. veterinarians get to take a break that technicians mm-hmm. get to take a break that they're not working through their lunch that they're not interrupted when they're on their downtime that the phones do get shut off that we yeah. do close our hospital at a certain time that we only take you know clients up to a certain time and no matter what we you know if if you're lucky enough to work in an environment where there are other clinics that are open or emergency clinics that you do get to close and you do get to go home and that you do go, you know, see your family and saying that it sounds harsh is part of the problem, right? Yeah. Just because that's the minority view. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I, and I thought of when you were talking, um, when I got out of veterinary school, there were very few emergency clinics and most of the small animal clinics in my area took their own emergencies. So we were on a pager or a phone service or, you know, and when people called in the middle of the night, that was our job to get out of bed, drive down to the clinic and do whatever, do a C-section, do a, you know, a bloat or, and it was terrible. And then be back at work at 8am. Right. And they didn't get good care and they didn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't my best self at three in the morning and sometimes, you know, you'd go all the way down there and the, cause I do birds and the pet would already be dead. And so it was a total waste of time, you know, and over the years that has changed. So no veterinarians in my area ever do call 
you know, it, and it slowly evolved. It was like, first mm-hmm. we, you know, didn't take call from this time to this time. And, you know, and then the emergency clinic started to open up and then we just did, you know, calls for our own clients. And then it kind of evolved into, well, I don't want to be on call. And, you know, and, and it was veterinarians demanding that and also the profession changing in a way where we did have more emergency clinics. And so change is possible, but it really has to be pushed by the individuals and, mm-hmm. and then also the hospital owners and not being okay with, you know, we need to make one more dollar mm-hmm. and we can't be closed because, um, you know, somebody's got a, a program with their kid at school, you know, and that should all be okay. It should be like yeah. your kid has a program at school, leave it for, you know, your yeah. shift is till six, but no, mark the books, get out of here, yeah. go do it. How often have you been here overtime in this fortnight? You know, just right. exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that it is our job and to start demanding it. And then, you know, as an industry, what do you think the solutions are overall? Do you have an idea about that? Look, I mean, I won't pretend that I, I know how to fix the industry as a whole. Um, I do think it is, you know, what I would classify as a wicked problem, which is one of those kind of problems so multifarious that you you there is no one solution there is no kind of silver bullet there's never going to be and um you know that there's a lot of yeah exactly there's a lot of speculation about oh well if they just did this better it would be fine and if they just did this then it would be fine and I don't believe any of that to be true but I do believe that we as individuals have a lot of power and as you say, it's it. We changed the industry when we started saying, "I don't really want to do on call anymore," and right. it got harder like, I just and harder. Because it, it was expected, but then the new vets yeah. came out were like, "I don't want to do that." And and yeah. as an owner, I had to say, "Oh, okay. Well, then I guess we're not doing that anymore." I think that that's how things filter out. So what what happened is you have some clinics that are no longer making their staff do on call, and some who still are. And these are the clinics that attract the staff. Right. And so we are currently in, you know, a stage where we we have the power in that if we gravitate towards the clinics who are offering the lifestyle that we are choosing and who are offering those solutions, then these clinics that aren't offering them are going to go out of business because if you can't staff your clinics, you're in serious trouble. I think that's one of the biggest risks to the industry right now. And so we have the power to shift that simply by choosing our employers based on what we believe they should be offering us. And to me, that at an absolute minimum is you get your goddamn lunch break. (laughs) And if a thing is not dying imminently, when the doors are meant to shut at six, if they phone at 10 to six, then they are sent to the nearest emergency clinic. Whether they're happy or not, right? Exactly. Whether they're our client, whether they pay lots of money or not. And, you know, I think that from, from our perspective, we can push clinic sort of, you know, almost money where your mouth is, I guess, you know, take your employment where where your values are. And with that pressure, I think that we've got a chance of nudging things in the right direction. But I also think that there's a lot to be done from the top down. I think that, again, you know, I'm sure there are differences between our countries, but I don't believe that they're particularly 
other ends of the scale differences. Um, but our, so we have the Australian Veterinary Association. I know you have the ABMA. Um, they're missing the link that is, you know, they know about the suicide issues. They know about the challenges of attrition and they keep kind of throwing these things. Oh, we'll, we'll get more new graduates out there and we'll, you know, teach the new grads better resilience and all of these things. And they're failing to really identify why are people leaving the industry and to really put pressure in place. So we have something in Australia called an award. An award is a minimum set of standards for employment per profession. So obviously we have, you know, like national legal requirements and then you've got your employer's rules, but there's something in the middle called an employment award, which is for the veterinary and animal services profession, these are the minimum standards. And in the veterinary profession, it is laughable. It is absolutely laughable that there is no other award in Australia that allows that degree of overtime without being entitled to penalty rates, to overtime anything, to extra meal breaks if you've been there over 11 hours. The nurses are entitled to these things as per our award, but the vets aren't. So there's a difference in industries and to the standards. Yep, absolutely. And the veterinary industry is by far, you know, still working on a 1970s version of what was okay back then. Hmm. And, you know, without pressure from the Australian Veterinary Association, that is never changing. The reason that, so the minimum award, for example, salary for a new graduate vet is Hmm. (laughs) $45,000. Now, don't get me wrong. That isn't what's paid. Right. And average new graduate salary is probably closer to 60. Why? Because everyone is desperate for vets. And so if new graduates are coming out and they've got the choice between 45 and 60, this is legal. Right. But but that doesn't. But they're putting the pressure upwards. And if we stop doing that just for salaries and started looking towards what do we value in an organization that supports us as human beings? I think that we have a lot of power. Yeah. And I, I, I've told that to a lot of, um, I work with veterinary students sometimes and, you know, they're all worried about their work and how many hours they're going to work. And I said, you have the power right now. You Mm. can walk into any veterinary clinic in the United States and pretty much demand what you want and you will probably Mm -hmm. get it. And then I have veterinary owners that I'm coaching and they're like, well, I can't afford to hire anyone at those higher rates that the students are demanding or, or have the vacation time. And I said, well, then you're going to have to raise your prices Mm -hmm. and change the way your hospital works. You're going to have to figure Mm -hmm. something out. You know, what are you not charging for that you're doing? Can you get more support staff? So your veterinarians can do more work and bring in more money so you can pay them more. I mean, there's there's different ways to change the industry that mm-hmm. don't require us to lose money or um, you know abuse the people that work for us. And there's this mentality that that's the case. And, I, and it's absolutely true that if you demand it, then the industry is gonna have to start to mm-hmm. come in that direction. 
And as you say, you know, we're we're in this time of there is so much demand for our services. And in any other situation, any other industry, when you've got a supply demand mismatch, what do you do? You raise your prices. Exactly. And so we're failing an opportunity which is right in front of us to go, people need us now. People have gone and spent $5,000 on their new French bulldog during COVID. Or their doodle. Well, their doodle, yeah. Doodles and And, French bulldogs. Yeah, and if they want to then say that it's our fault that they haven't then left some money over for their vaccination, they're wrong. They are just trying to give you their guilt. And so if we if we were in any other profession and there was this degree of demand for our services, the absolute first thing we would be doing is raising our prices and paying our people better. And people think we are not playing. And well, and the the answer I always get back from the owners is, well, well, clients will complain. They won't. I well, they might. I always. But where else do they go? Yeah, they they don't have an option, right? And they and even if they complain, they're still paying it. They're mm-hmm. not, you know. So what do we care if they complain? Oh, you raised your prices. Yes, we did. Next. <laughs> yeah. know, where, where else do you go that they don't raise their prices? Yeah. Now in the United States, the prices of everything have gone up in the last, you know, few months. Gasoline, lumber. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to these contractors, and they're like, everything's gone way up. Well, why shouldn't our services? Yeah. Why should Basic supply and demand economics. Absolutely. Just because there is emotion involved, that doesn't mean that that's our guilt when people can't afford us. Right. You know, it, it is people trying to give you their guilt and it is not your guilt to take home. Let them get it out and then leave it on the table. Right. Walk away. Because at the end of the day, it is an emotive transaction, but it is also still our livelihoods, the business livelihood. And that's how the world works. We live in a capitalist first world country. If you don't like that, maybe there are other countries, economic systems that are better suited to you. But it is, it's not, it's not my job to stress for the animal that is not at my clinic. So if, if I, you know, close my doors at 6 p.m. and somebody wanted to come and see me at 6.10, that's actually not, not my issue. I have to be able to let that go as someone else's issue. There is an emergency center. There are other cl- clinics open till 8 who charge an appropriate surcharge for being open that late. And they pass that on to their staff <laughs> in right. an ideal world. They get more money, right? If you work at the emergency yeah. clinic, you get paid more. Exactly. And and I think if the more I try to solve everybody's animal issue at all hours of any day of the week, the less I am good for the animals that I actually are in front of me Monday to Friday, nine till six, whatever my hours are. Um, and, you know, I, I think that point about things like, appropriate surcharges being passed on to the vets if if your clinic does want to have a late night thursday night or something sure absolutely charge an extra 30 dollars for the consult for the convenience factor of doing it and make sure your vets are remunerated with that the vet that works that shift should get that funds or at least 50 percent of it Um, and i think that again these are solutions that 
if people want that Thursday night appointment, it's up to them whether they want to pay the money or not. Absolutely. That's, that's their choice. If they prioritize their convenience over their funds, that's totally their choice. And so if we're saying, oh, well, people won't pay it, maybe they won't. Yeah. Then you clearly well, don't need to be open till 8 p.m. Well, and I, and I tell when I'm coaching people on that and they say, well, people won't pay that. I said, well, try it. You can always lower your prices again. Mm-hmm. So if you raise them and you look at your next month and see if you lost a bunch of clients, you can always pull your prices back. If you find out that mm-hmm. it doesn't work, like you're, well, we talked about at the beginning, you might fail, but mm-hmm. what if you did creep them up and nobody said a word mm-hmm. and it creeped them up again and nobody said a word. And all of your team can make more money. They can have a better life. They can take more time off. Like the, the finances drive the convenience of what you can do for your people. And I think we forget that, um, as business owners that we're in charge of that. And so the, the veterinarians can demand that we pay them more. They can demand that they have a better life, but then for us to say, well, I can't do that is not, it's not true. Yeah. Not true. Because at the end of the day, if, if you do lose some, you up your prices and some customers do go somewhere else, but they, those animals are still receiving vet care somewhere else. Yeah. Your staff are happier. You are happier. More. The demand out there suggests that you are still going to make more money. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there's, there's just a lot to be said for, as you say, give it a shot. Yeah. If it doesn't work, <laughs> one of my favorite clinics I ever locumed at, this is a, this is an unusual uh, diversion, but one of my favorite clinics for the staff Christmas party. Um, they weren't a particularly, um, they were a welfare clinic. Well, they weren't, but they were a very low income clinic. Um, and so they weren't sort of Christmas bonuses or anything that to go around. But at the staff Christmas party, the boss's present to the staff is that they got to vote on the one client they wanted to fire. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing, right? <laughs> and I just think as a staff engagement activity, letting your staff know that, you know, yep, yeah, okay, we're gonna take your whinges seriously on this one client. Yeah. I just think that that's that staff engagement 101. And I think that we should be doing the same thing when it comes to economics. Yeah, and, let, and letting your team maybe be a part of those decisions too. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. something that we forget, you know, like what do they need? What do they want? How can we change the practice to suit them? Mm-hmm. You know, many of the changes in my practice came from the the demands, you know, we weren't getting out on time. The doctors were complaining. Okay, well, let's bump back one appointment. Let's only book until, you know, 520 instead of 540 because we close at six. So let's bump it back to 520 and see what happens. And then if we don't keep getting out on time, then we'll bump it back to five, you know, and just kind of try to figure out what works to make it better. And I I think that then if it gets to be a financial problem, then like you said, you raise, raise the prices or charge a premium for those later appointments. You know, Mm. I I really think those are all great ideas. I feel like we've we've come a long way from uh, imposter syndrome to capitalist economics. (laughs) Well, one more thing I thought of, and I, and I can split this um, podcast into two since we're going so long, and I don't want to keep you too long because 
it's late there. I'm get I'm go I'm getting going now because I <laughs> I'm kind of waking up, but um, I don't want to keep you any uh, too much longer. But as you were speaking, a thing popped into my head about it was more more about the clients um, giving us bad reviews on social media, and the client the like the neighbors texting you at night, asking you to look mm. at your dog on your off hours. Like I see so much of that on, on social media that people struggle with that so much. And so I thought maybe to, to close out this, the second part of the podcast is talking a little bit about the, what tools you would recommend to people on how not to let that affect them or how not to fall prey to caving in to your neighbors when they show up on your doorstep or they text you like that's the big thing or they Facebook message you like how do you advise veterinarians to protect themselves around all of that yeah look I don't I don't think there's any more simple answer to that as there are to how do we solve the industry-wide problems I think um we naturally want to help and you know particularly when faced with our neighbor who was right there with a dog. Um, I'm not going to lie. I sometimes use the law to protect myself, which is actually I'm not allowed to give professional advice without seeing your dog in a professional setting. You know, I could be sued for that. Um, so I sometimes simply, if I really don't want to engage and it, it's easy, it's better for my mental health, I just say, it, it would be unprofessional of me to, to give you advice without doing a professional exam. Um, so, you know, at best, I might send them a web link. You know, here's a reputable source to look that thing up or your dog's having this. I'm, I'm really passionate about dog behavior. So I get a lot of behavior questions. And if I am not in the zone that I want to take that on, at best, I will send them a link to a good person saying, I highly recommend this person's details on that subject. Um, as for social media, though, I'm not perfect at social media switching off or, or work in shelters. And, um, you know, I am just susceptible as most people to the keyboard warrior, <laughs> you know, and that, you know, you think that you've done an amazing job and you've saved, you know, the, the, the shelter I work at at the moment, you know, 8,000 cats a year, um, you know, 90% live release rate, which is exceptional for an open admission shelter. We don't turn anybody away. Um, and yet there are still people out there that will go, oh, you murdered that cat or why didn't you try harder on that cat? And I guess the big one for me is, you know, a little bit the same as people trying to pass on their guilt. But I also go, it, it's, it's very easy to sit in the comfort of your chair behind your computer and judge that we're not doing well enough until you have skin in the game your opinion isn't important frankly if you're down here fighting the good fight with me and you think we're not doing well enough then let's have a conversation about how we can do better but if you're sitting up there on the stands shouting down that I should run faster or work harder frankly your opinion is not important. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect at, at following my own advice on that one, but I do believe it. I do believe that um, I, I will take anybody who's got skin in the game. 
that wants to have a go that I could be doing things better, I will take that opinion really seriously and I want to have that conversation. But if it's somebody sitting behind a keyboard having a go because they have no idea the realities of what we face, um, then then I'm very impatient to it. And, and I don't engage. I nev- never engage in a Facebook conversation. Absolutely never. Yeah, that's <laughs> important because your first instinct is to go back at these people, right? Your first yeah. instinct is to get into it and try yeah. to tell them why they're wrong and give them mm-hmm. the facts because they don't know the facts and that like that gets you all jazzed up and wanting yeah. to prove that they're wrong. And that, and that really isn't useful. I think as soon as you come at anything from trying to prove someone wrong, you're already going to fail. Um, I think for most of the time, whether you're in a vet clinic or an animal shelter, if you wait 10 minutes, someone else will defend you for you. Um, you know, that it's easy to believe that all these haters out there have the loudest voices. But if you actually watch it many, many, many times, someone else comes in and goes, have you got any idea how much vet stuff costs? Or, you know, do you have any idea how hardworking these vets are? Or actually, I had an amazing experience with that person. And and so, yeah, and and not without you ever having to defend yourself, somebody else will do that for you because someone out there does recognize your value. Um, but also, if that's not the case, you know, having sort of run shelters and and social media being a remit that I've had to take care of a few times, one of the biggest, most powerful tools I find is if somebody does kind of put out a, a really negative viewpoint of an action you've taken or something that you've done or something they don't like I won't tend to get involved in that discussion but I will wait two or three days until it dies down and then I will put out a really proactive piece semi-related related enough that it proves my point but without ever responding to an allegation or someone else's it's just simply here's an amazing heartwarming story that illustrates how many animals we help in this space so for example if somebody has a go of this dog that I didn't save I will do a big story about the lengths we went to to save another dog which makes really clear to anybody who is engaged in our organization, there was clearly a reason that that dog was an exception yeah, um, and that we didn't give it up without a fight. And so that's probably one of my, my biggest tricks, I guess, of the trade is I never come out on the defensive, absolutely refuse to defend, um, but I will wait until an appropriate hours or days or weeks later depending on how big the issue is and then come out with a really proactive positive story that illustrates why that person was wrong yeah the other thing that i i've recommended before and i and this is how i handle in a veterinary hospital setting a really negative review is to not dispute it not answer it back but basically say thank you so much for letting us know you're you were disappointed in our service or whatever, will you please call me directly? Here is my direct number. I'd love to discuss this with you to see if I can Mm. help and Mm -hmm. just be like open to it because nine Mm -hmm. times out of 10, those people will not confront you. They don't want to confront you. And that's why they're sitting behind the keyboard because hour of social media, either they know they're wrong or they, they just don't want to confront and that's her way of confronting without actually doing it. And so when I see a review, a really nasty review and I see a kind response, then 
I either assume that it was discussed and taken care of, or that person just wanted to be ugly. And then Mm -hmm. either way, that's not a useful review to me as a somebody checking out a business. And so I hope that most people have that attitude. The other thing um, that I really want to encourage people to do is if a neighbor shows up on your door or they text you and they want you to take care of their pet or a relative texts you and you don't have the wherewithal to say no, like you said, to stand up for yourself and you decide to help them or answer them or whatever it is, then I think it's so damaging to continue that victim story. Well, this Mm. person texted me and I had to take time Mm. out of my day to help them and blah, 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 blah. No, you chose Mm -hmm. to help them. That was your choice. Now own it and just help them. And then yeah. let go of that victim story because, because I do that, right? My tech calls me at, mm-hmm. you know, on a Sunday because something's wrong with one of their pets and they don't want to go to the emergency clinic. Can I help them? So now it's my decision. Do I mm-hmm. want to say no and make them go to the emergency clinic or do I want to go drive to the hospital and help them? And if I yeah. choose to go to the hospital and help them, now I have to let go of the story. Yeah. Because I see it's the martyr syndrome again. again. Yeah, it goes right it's back. The same as the lunch break. Yeah, exactly. So it mm-hmm. it all kind of comes back to protecting yourself, owning it, and then um, working on your own brain to stop telling yourself that you don't have any power here. You yeah. know, and that kind of goes that so kind of encompasses all of the things that we've talked about today. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think so much of it is is no, I, I, you know, I think when we say victim mentality, it kind of gives it really negative con- connotations, but it's really about just recognizing your choice in the situation. And even though pressure may strongly be against you, it is still your choice, whether that's skipping your lunch break to do some paperwork, whether that's staying late, whether that's helping, you know, your neighbor on the weekend, um, whether that's getting involved involved in a social media argument (laughs) Um, you do have a choice Um, and while I'm not saying that I don't often make the wrong choice just the same as any other human being on the planet absolutely we all the important part is to go oops my bad (laughs) not they're bad because they made me right and and that learning from that failure like we talked about back Mm -hmm. at the beginning yeah yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate you so much. This has been this has been so fun. I love talking to you. Like we can go on for a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I am going to let you go, but there's so many more things that I want to talk to you about. So I really hope that at some point we can get together again. If you enjoy this, I I'm enjoying it a lot. Now now you've got your daylight savings finished. The timing is a little bit more uh, amenable. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, we can do this again. So anything you want to say about your business and get a little plug in for if you want to find you you and what you do. Always. So I run Um, Don't forget the AU on the end. Otherwise you end up at some tech company. (laughs) 
um, yeah. and any help that you you might need with um, leadership or resilience in your workplace or um, general consulting. I'm a lot less about business consulting, a lot less about um, money and efficiency. I believe that money and efficiency comes by to taking care of your people. So I'm I'm the human element of the animal industry for sure. So any help you might need with culture and engagement and um, people skills, leadership, that sort of stuff, I'm your person. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate you. I Now I'll let you go so you can go to bed and I'll go start my day. <laughs> it was lovely speaking to you again. Yeah, I love it too. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Jessica Moore-Jones and she's a lovely human and I really appreciate you. <laughs> you too. Thank you so much. You Have a beautiful Bye. day, everyone. Bye. Bye.